This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On air, back for another week here, Sportsnet 650, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, our producer Josh Elliott-Wolf. It is a Halloween edition uh, of uh, On Air. Happy Halloween. It is not a Halloween uh, weather-wise in Vancouver. It is a balmy, sunny day on October 31st. But uh, look, uh, people are going to try to enjoy this uh, fun holiday as much as they can. On today's show, we'll talk to Sportsnet's Arash Madani and Brad Schlossman of the Grand Forks Herald will join us to discuss the Mitchell Miller story from a University of North Dakota perspective. Uh, obviously, that story broke last week and has been uh, developing throughout this week with uh, the Arizona Coyotes renouncing the draft rights of their 2020 fourth round pick, which was followed by the University of North Dakota, where Mitchell Miller was uh, committed to play, uh, also letting him uh, off of their team. So we will touch on that throughout the show and, and get Brad's perspective on uh, just how the University of North Dakota reached that decision. You can text us 650-650. Uh, we've got the text box open here throughout the show, or you can tweet us. I'm at Israel Fair, and Alex is at ACPW Blair. Uh, we got a lot to get to, Alex. This is a, you know, we, we don't have hockey going on. The NBA is over. The World Series finished this week, but we've got a pretty varied list of headlines uh, to get to this week. Got uh, some local stuff, some national stuff. So I'll, I'll see to you. Where do, where do you want to start the show this week? Let's start with MLB. Uh, I know we're going to get into that with a rash, but uh, their season uh, for all the speed bumps that they hit through sort of their loose COVID protocols, they did manage to get to the end, though there was a bit of a, a COVID storyline out of the uh, the celebration. <laughs> there sure was, yep. But since we were on from last uh, Saturday, we had a uh, tremendous game four. We were actually setting up game four earlier that day. And uh, the bottom of the ninth turned out to be one for um, probably one of the sort of the lasting memories, if you will, of this World Series. And then uh, obviously on Wednesday, uh, a lot of the focus shifted in the the sixth inning there with uh, the Rays manager, Kevin Cash, making... What was, um, it wasn't a delayed reaction. I mean, it was a very in the moment reaction that everyone sort of questioned at that very moment. Was this the right thing? And within six pitches uh, of the reliever, <laughs> yeah. that that all changed and Kevin Cash looked like a bit of a goat. But um, you've covered baseball for quite a bit um, with both The Athletic and Yahoo. Give me your sort of kind of wrap up, if you will, of the World Series and specifically what you thought of Kevin Cash's decision in Game 6. Overall, and I look forward to getting Arash's perspective on this as someone who's covered a lot of World Series, and this was a, a World Series unlike any other, obviously. But the series was memorable. Unlike the other sports where the NBA and the NHL had their better moments earlier in their bubble experience, Major League Baseball peaked with its championship series. Now, that might not be reflected in some of the television numbers, but that's just true across the board in, in all sports right now. Uh, it, it's not a reflection of of the quality of the series, as you mentioned, Alex. That uh, Game Four finish was as unbelievable as as any baseball fan could remember. Uh, a, a comedy of errors in in certain ways, and a team uh, getting you know getting a win there. But it, it went back to before uh, that ninth inning. There were some great plays 
for the last four or five innings of that game that really made it a memorable one. And the thing that people will remember is the the Blake Snell pull. And I, I was on the program earlier this week talking to to Walker and sat about it. And I was pretty strong in in believing that it was the wrong decision. We have gotten to a point in baseball where a lot of these pitching decisions are pre-planned. I made the comparison to a football coach planning the first 10 or 20 plays of a game where he can work with his team during the week heading into that game on those plays. So they know how they're going to execute the first 10 or 20 plays on offense. That's something that that's quite common. Baseball teams are trying to do that with their bullpens where they are planning for different scenarios later in the game. And the thing is now that Generally, these bullpens are pretty deep. They're much deeper than they were in the past. Guys throw harder than they did in the past. You're not just saving your reliever, your one great reliever for this spot. The idea is that there are a number of players that can come in based on different matchups, different situations, and get outs. But in this case, Blake Snell, who has not been the same pitcher that he was uh, for the Raids a couple of years ago when he won the Cy Young, was pitching an amazing game. And I'm the kind of sports fan or sports armchair analyst that wants to go down with my best. And on that night, he was surely their best, even if they had come up with an amazing bullpen bullpen plan pulled to perfection. We saw it earlier in the playoffs where the Dodgers had a couple of games where they had to basically go bullpen from the start. And the broadcasters, in this case, it was it was Joe Buck and John Smoltz were talking about it can work and it can work well, but it's one of those instances where you need all six pitchers to execute. And in this case, Blake Snell was carrying it on his own. And that is, it's going to be a defining moment uh, in, in that kind of war against analytics, I suppose. I am a fan of analytics. I think it informs a lot. But in this case, it was it was the wrong call. Yeah, unfortunately for all the good that uh, that the Rays have done with such a limited uh, budget and, you know, the job that Kevin Cash had done, he had tied himself to this. Uh, he had made no secrets about, you know, the way they were going to go about it. And, you know, unfortunately, when you make an unconventional decision, as he did, you're putting your neck out there further than, you know, I, I thought about it in reverse. Had he left Snell in and the same thing occurred, he wouldn't be getting crucified because that's the way the majority of people would have handled it. But because it went the other way, he was just getting lambasted from every direction. And unfortunately for, for he and the Rays, that'll be sort of the takeaway. Um, before we move on from the MLB, uh, just a quick thought on the Justin Turner situation. I know that garnered a lot of attention. Um, he tests positive or gets the results of a positive test during game six, is immediately removed. But after the Dodgers win, he comes back out onto the field. He's celebrating. He's celebrating without a mask. Um, and according to MLB, he was asked to leave and vehemently <laughs> oppose their decision. Right. Uh, it sounds like MLB is going to come down harshly, and uh, you know, and and they should, you know. Yep. Um, but I, you know, what I think Justin Turner's to blame. But I also think that this is MLB, and you know, when you come back to play and you're asking players to go through what they've tried to do their entire lives, I think MLB has a bit of culpability here as well. Definitely. It was a bad look all around. It was quite stunning when the game ends, the Dodgers finally win this World Series. Clayton Kershaw's a World Series champion. 
the trade for Mookie Betts is 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 already I don't know bearing fruit, and all of a sudden the announcement is that Justin Turner was pulled late in the game because he's tested positive, and it was everything was happening so fast, and all of a sudden everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. They're still got cameras on the field for the celebration, and and there he is moments after the audience is informed that he's just tested positive. There is teeny bit of sympathy that I have for him because I can try to put myself in his shoes as someone who's been a major leaguer for 10 years. You'd want to be out there. Yeah. You've spent your entire life. That's where what you're saying about the, the, the impact of major league baseball or the decision-making of major league baseball. It's just, there's no, there's no alternative. And I, there was an interesting column written by Nancy armor in USA today coming off of the Turner decision where she compared and contrasted what happened when Rudy Gobert tested positive in March, where they evacuated an arena that was filled with fans immediately. As soon as that uh, decision was made and here we are, and there were fans in the building, but we have gotten to a point, especially I think in the United States, though Canada is, is not uh, innocent in this regard uh, where there is just a kind of blatant disregard and, yeah, we're I think not treating co- COVID like that. Yeah, there's some COVID fatigue setting in. And I think when you refer the the Rudy Gobert, I think especially at the beginning with the unknowns, there was a lot of fear. And as this is dragged out, uh, I think there are some people that are still following medical protocols. And I think there's some people that are starting to think, um, you know, even if I get this, this isn't going to affect me. Uh, but I think, you know, as medical experts have said, that's very short-sighted. It's not always about you. It's about the people around you and who you could be impacting. Um, quickly, we had a great Sunday nighter, uh, unless you're sort of a Seahawks fan. Uh, we talked about it a little bit last week about the sort of defensive liabilities of this Seahawks team, even though they were 5-0. and And those very much came to the forefront on Sunday night. Um, could those defensive liabilities proved to be fatal. Uh, They did make a signing this week. They traded with Cincinnati and they brought in uh, a new defensive end, which, you know, from Cincinnati, Carlos Dunlap, who should help. Is that enough? Or do you think the Seahawks are going to need to do more defensively? Probably another move. Uh, That was glaring in that game on Sunday night. Uh, Yes, Russell Wilson made a couple of uncharacteristic throws. Uh, The Seahawks should have been able to put that game away but they didn't get any pressure on Kyler Murray, right? He's yes, he's elusive. Yes. He's a good athlete, uh, but I, it was close to 50 dropbacks. It's no sacks. They haven't been getting any pressure. And while they're secondary and they're playing without Jamal Adams, who is supposed to be someone that's just going to, he's going to raise the game uh, for everybody as just this kind of all around safety who can rush the quarterback, who can line up against tight ends. He's, he's a great player. He was a first round pick a couple of years ago. He showed in the first couple of games of this season for the Seahawks that he's that kind of impact player, but he's been injured. Uh, they've got a great, they got a great linebacking core with Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright, but there's only so much stress that those units, the the secondary and the linebackers, can take when the uh, the defensive line is getting no pressure on the quarterbacks, and uh, all of a sudden. Kyler Murray can run a little bit. Uh, he can get some space, and he made some great throws to the sidelines to DeAndre Hopkins, who, outside of a fumble, made some unbelievable plays for them. And that's it, it's clear that the Seahawks needed to to do at least something. Dunlap will help. They got him at a pretty cheap price, and that's that's sort of where the Seahawks are at right now. I think 
I think this is philosophical to a certain degree. We saw them do it with Jadavian Clowney last year too, where uh, they know that they've got the quarterback. They've paid him. They're very comfortable with the performance that they're going to get from him. They've got some weapons offensively in, in DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, who had an unbelievable game. Uh, their running backs are banged up right now, uh, but when they've been healthy, they've been able. Chris Carson has been good. Even Carlos Hyde was pretty solid uh, before he kind of got banged up in that game as well. But they, they need more, and they've picked up a pretty good player in Carlos Dunlap for not a lot because they know that they're going to be some of these teams like Cincinnati. They're not a very good team. They're in that mode of moving off high-paid veterans, and the Seahawks are going to take advantage. And uh, they might have to do uh, another couple of moves here uh, to, to shore that up because it is it is a weakness, and it's it's something yeah, that it, you could in see. Crunch, in crunch time, it became yeah, well, glaring. That we they, talked they about it with Stick last week, right? If they're going to yeah. play Tampa Bay in the playoffs, you cannot win with Tom Brady, who's looked great the last couple of weeks, having that much time. When they've oh, lost not, not even in close. the playoffs... Uh, when Tom Brady was uh, in his prime, uh, it's because teams were getting after him. And Seahawks, they're not even getting close. Yeah, the Seahawks are a league worst, allowing 479 plus yards per game, 368 plus of those through the air. So um, we will see whether Dunlap uh, can make a significant impact. Um, going back to the diamond quickly, Tony Larusa named the manager of the White Sox. Where did this come from? <laughs> Yeah, I think we 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 know the answer to this. It, it's Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, a lifelong friend of Tony La Russa, who fired him in the mid-80s, which tells you something about how long Tony La Russa has been doing this. Though it's been it's been over 10 years, it's been almost 10 years since he was last the manager. And look, he's got the Hall of Fame resume. He's already in the Hall of Fame. And by all accounts, this was a ownership decision that they went went above the front office. In Chicago, a team that was really young and really exciting this year. They've got those players locked up. And Jerry Reinsdorf has made the decision that uh, Tony La Russa and his veteran presence is going to be the thing that's going to lead them to, to being a World Series contender again. I think sports fans in general are probably a little bit more familiar with Jerry Reinsdorf through the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary as he was also is the owner of the Chicago Bulls and was featured prominently in that. And he's... He's a bit of an emotional guy, and he he we saw it throughout. You know, he's he was defending Jerry Krause. He still has, uh, you know, he tries to keep an, a, an emotional relationship with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Even though toward the end they took they totally turned on Jerry Krause. Jerry Reinsdorf has owned these teams for a long time. The White Sox are near and dear to his heart, and he he thought that that going back to that well was something that uh, was the right decision. We've seen this happen before, right? We've seen teams go back to, to legendary managers before. I mean, off the top of my head, I think about uh, the Washington football team a few years ago, going back to Joe Gibbs, right? Yeah, uh, New York Yankees. Right, Billy Martin a million yeah. times. Uh, it, it's it's something that happens. It is funny in contrast with the World Series and Kevin Cash being one of these super advanced metrics guys who I think should win probably the American League Manager of the Year based on the regular season sample and he gets destroyed for his decision. And then a few days later, Tony La Russa is introduced as the White Sox manager because uh, and it's not directly linked. It's just a funny contrast that, you know, the analytics guy is getting killed and here's Tony La Russa, a guy who uh, at times was Couldn't be further from analytics. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's got his old school, his old school nature. He's a, he's been a baseball guy for a long time. 
just quickly before we get to PD on spit and chicklets, uh, with that uh, in mind, if there was a coach or a manager that you could bring back for a team that you grew up rooting for or one you followed closely, uh, who would it be? And I'll put that to producer Josh Elliott Wolf as well, because I've thought about this. I've thought about this in regards to Elaine Vigneault. I understood why Elaine had to go when he did, but I did wonder down the road if I could see Elaine returning to Vancouver. And maybe that window's closed now. I mean, a lot of time has passed. But give me your thoughts on a manager that could return or you would like to see return. Uh, it's, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, I think, I mean, I've, if it's based off the, the the few teams that I'm a fan of, I mean, I, I support Arsenal in the Premier League and they had one manager for basically the whole time that I was a supporter in, in Arsene Wenger. I would still, you know, I would still be happy if he was the manager of Arsenal, but I think they're they're in a pretty good place there now. And uh, I was I'm, I grew up a Seahawks fan. I grew up a fan of Mike Holmgren, but the Seahawks are in a good place with Pete Carroll right now as well. So I, I think if if it was to come down to to the Canucks, uh, Alain Vigneault and, and revisiting that uh, in in this with this group would be. I, I'm with you. I didn't think that he was the problem with that team. Uh, when he was let go, there the situation was kind of getting out of control uh, based on players aging, uh, different situations with ownership, different situations with management. Uh, it was a team that that missed its window, and sometimes you you got to do the coach reset. But uh, mm-hmm. Vino has proven with Philadelphia that he can still come into a situation and, and make some some pretty tight changes. We saw the Flyers uh, before the the pandemic stopped the season, and from January through March, they were arguably the best team in the league, and uh, they didn't show that in the playoffs necessarily. But there's there's a pretty good uh, the pretty good standard there. Yeah, producer and notable writer Josh. Uh, yeah, I think I have to agree on the Vigneault front as well, just because, yeah, he, he's the one coach that I would say, and like, as he said, he wasn't the issue with the Canucks when he got fired. And obviously coaches kind of have a shelf life and eventually what they're saying kind of gets lost or they get too comfortable with the room. But I think with the new core in Vancouver, he could definitely uh, fit the bill, but also, uh, if I had to pick another, John Gibbons, I was always a fan of with the Blue Jays. Ooh, but, good. Yeah, good call. Yeah, but obviously he's already come back once. I don't think he's coming back <laughs> again. Yeah. But it, it's, I think the same reason you say Gibbons is in some ways why I think Vigneault in Vancouver, I think the fan base really liked and respected him. And I think there was, even though there was an understanding that he had to go then, I think once those sort of emotions sort of passed I think there was still such a respect for both those people that they could have come back and it would have been you know it would have been lauded uh quickly before we wrap up the the segment here uh Petey uh was on Spit and Chicklets this week Izzy what did you learn from his appearance on the popular podcast my answer is going to be short because I, I didn't listen to it. So you'll have to be the one to inform the audience. I I heard a couple of very short clips on social media, but I, I did not listen to it. So uh, I learned some other things. I learned about how the fan base reacted to it. I learned about the the reaction of a couple of hosts in relation to uh, a Vancouver media member. But I didn't I didn't learn anything about Elise Pettersson. So the floor is yours. Okay. Well, we might have to unpack that media members because I'm not familiar with that. Um, what I thought was most interesting, and it wasn't anything that I didn't know from just watching him, but it was more interesting to hear him articulate about his enjoyment, about showing his personality, whether it's through clothes or through social media, 
Um, and I know another topic we were going to get on today is sort of the potential for an all-Canadian division next year. And I think Canada specifically is really lucky right now because I see PD being fairly comparable to Austin Matthews in that regard, where young players who have come in and aren't rookies, but they're still, you know, they're not veterans, have come in in a new, with a bit of swagger, and they've been okay to step outside the sort of traditional confines of hockey. And... I know not everybody loves it, but I do think it's good for a different demographic of the fan base. Um, and listen, if you just like seeing players play, then that's still happening. But if you're someone who needs a few other things to sort of draw your interest into the game, whether it's the shoes that Austin Matthews is wearing or, you know, the types of things that Petey's into off the ice, those two players I see as sort of the at the forefront of this next generation, which I think is internally changing the culture of the NHL. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're lucky enough to have one in Vancouver because I think that this is good for the sport. Um, both, I know from listening to Austin Matthews and Elias Pedersen talked about it this week, both of them actually look to the NBA and sort of the culture and the creativity and the personal um, forms of expression that the NBA is sort of a leader at and those are things that they um, look up to. And so that's really interesting to hear. So that was that was probably the biggest takeaway um, that I had. And outside of that, it was, you know, fairly what you'd expect. And I mean, sometimes it's challenging doing these things remotely over, you know, um, computers and different things like that. So um, really quickly before we go to break, because I know we're up against it here. Uh, any thoughts on the sort of predicament that I guess the OHL finds themselves in? Um, the health minister for Ontario is saying, if you return, you cannot have any physical contact. Yeah, quite a strong reaction to that uh, immediate reaction, kind of like the Kevin Cash, Blake Snell situation. It's not something that's done in hindsight. It's pretty immediate. I'm far from a doctor. It seems uh, it seems like one of those points of contention that's probably uh that's that's not gonna ultimately make much of a difference uh it, it's it's kind of a, a potential compromise that doesn't seem like it's actually gonna result in any of those changes uh, or any of the you know health precautions that probably need to be in place uh it, it might sound good to certain people but uh, i think I think it's just uh, it's a statement that probably won't actually have an impact on on the things that they seem to be the health ministers and, and such uh, seem to be concerned with. Yeah, they were out. I think they're really banging the drum. If you've followed social media, I think they are trying to get pressure put on the government to maybe change their stance. But uh, we will see. I think they are not scheduled to kick off their season at this point until February. So there's still a few months to go. All right, uh, wrapping up headlines for this week. Coming up next, we will unpack a few of the things that we just talked about with Sportsnet's Arash Madani. Uh, we've got World Series. We've got uh, David Braley, uh, his death and the future of the BC Lions, as well as uh, a number of topics uh, with Arash, a guy who's always got great perspective on a number of different sports. Uh, so we'll do that next. It's on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. For Sportsnet today, this is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On air rolls on Israel Fair, Alex Blair. We will catch up with Sportsnet's Arash Madani. 
in a sec. Uh, he covered the World Series for Sportsnet. He's also a authority on the Canadian Football League. Some some big news at the top of the uh, BC Lions organization. David Braley uh, died earlier this week, and that is a person that has been a, a titan in the Canadian Football League and in uh, sports across Canada. So we will get Arash's perspective on those things. But uh, before before we bring in Arash, uh, Alex, uh, some, some big news out of the UK. I was watching some Premier League today. Apparently, the Premier League will not be affected, but uh, overall, some some pretty big news in terms of uh, of COVID and some of the restrictions put in place. Yeah, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has just announced in the last few minutes that he is instituting a full lockdown for England starting on Thursday, running through the start of December, uh, basically saying that the restrictions are to prevent, uh, quote, we could see uh, deaths in this country running at several thousand a day if this is not followed. Uh, so you can see that uh, the numbers in England are getting to a point where the government is stepping in. You hope that that type of uh, those numbers and that type of um, sort of action from the government is not going to hit North America. But um, as we've seen before, uh, Europe in some ways has led the trend when it's come to things COVID. So uh, England going into a month month long mandatory lockdown where you're not allowed to leave the home uh, unless it's for uh, very specific reasons. Right. And uh, who knows? Uh, we kind of predicted that there would be the second wave or not kind of predicted. It was predicted that there would be a second wave come the fall. Uh, but we're we're pretty entrenched in the sports world now, right? We talked about the Justin Turner situation uh, that felt somewhat normalized, even though it was it was rightfully called out. And it, it sounds like the Premier League is also going to continue to play. Uh, there's a big game tomorrow. I'm an Arsenal supporter. Uh, Arsenal, Man United tomorrow, and there's a a bunch of games throughout the you big know, one. the rest of the month. Yeah, huge huge game, right? So those uh th- those are apparently still going to to head head forward. Uh, who knows if the you know production or precautions and stuff will, will be put in place? But uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on that, keep you updated uh, as we do our show here on Saturdays. But uh, right now we'll bring in Arash Madani from Sportsnet. Uh, he's covers a lot of stuff. Normally, in, in normal circumstances, he's he's crossing the globe. This year, he was covering the World Series from from the home office. But uh, Arash, I wanted to ask you, and thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, you've covered a lot of World Series. You've covered a lot of different stuff. Uh, we obviously had the Blake Snell thing and the Justin Turner thing in Game 6. But how how will you remember this World Series overall? Because to me, it, it was, at least on the field, a, a pretty memorable one with a lot of great plays and, and you know a, a great team that had been kind of building their way to, to this championship for a while, finally pulling through. Yeah, guys, I, I just think this whole any of the championships uh, from Tampa winning to the Lakers winning to then the Dodgers winning. I think I'm going to remember it just as the championship that nobody was there. I know some people were there in Texas, but I, I just think we'll remember these as the COVID uh, titles. And I think the storyline of Blake Snell, we may remember kind of a flicker of it and that, yeah, you know, and I have a totally different take on the whole Justin Turner situation um, and baseball completely throwing him under the bus to cover their own butt. But, um, but yeah, I just think these will just remember, be remembered as the COVID titles more than anything else. Yeah, no, that's, that's my feeling too, Arash. And uh, I know we touched on Blake's now we'll, we'll get there, but you mentioned the Justin Turner situation. It sounds like, 
you may be in the same camp as I am in the sense that I feel like Major League Baseball is a little culpable here as well, asking these players to come back and chase something that they have been after their entire lives and then expecting them to handle it differently and without any emotion. Just give me your thoughts and your perspective. Well, Major League Baseball, Alex, came out with a statement blaming Justin Turner for everything. And the more I read that statement, I thought we were going to blame him for the Kennedy assassination while, while they were at it. I mean, let's just go through the timeline here. Major League Baseball knew in the second inning there was an inconclusive test with Justin Turner. They knew in the right. seventh inning that Justin Turner had tested positive. So Justin Turner had tested positive, and he was in a dugout with the Dodgers the entire day. He was in the locker room with the Dodgers the entire day. So what does Major League Baseball do? They just remove Justin Turner and say, okay, problem solved. But wait a minute. He was in close proximity, not wearing a mask, with those guys in the dugout for the entire game. But the show went on, even though the Tampa Rays would have been in contact with Dodgers players, even though the Tampa Rays were in contact with Justin Turner throughout the game. That was all okay. The issue was Justin Turner coming out afterwards, even though he had COVID all day and even though he had COVID all night, only because Major League Baseball determined that he had to leave in the seventh inning, did it then become unacceptable for Justin Turner to be around anyone? Why didn't the game stop then in the seventh inning? There were people in contact with Justin Turner. There were people in contact. There were players. There were managers. There were coaches. But especially players on the Dodgers who were then in turn in contact with the Rays. Why wasn't the game stopped? Oh, wait, because the business of the game took priority. And so that was okay, but Turner coming out to celebrate, even though he'd been around those guys for two and a half hours earlier in the day, that was the only irresponsible thing all day. Oh, okay, I got it. Couldn't have said it better myself, Arash. Um, You watched this series start to finish, and the Rays have made no sort of secrets about how they like to manage and the analytics they use. So give me what your reaction was when you saw Kevin Cash step out of the dugout with one out in the bottom of the sixth. Well, I wasn't surprised at all. Uh, still didn't mean I didn't roll my eyes. I mean, Blake Snell has not gotten out of the sixth inning since July of 2019. Um, look, this was the method that got Tampa to game six of the World Series, that formula. And it's what lost them game six of the World Series by sticking with one way of doing things and not being amendable and not being flexible enough to use your eyes and gauge the situation and say, oh my God, this guy's pitching the game of his life right now. Let's just let him rock and roll. Let's just let him continue what he's doing here because the Dodger bats have no answer to this. And the three guys coming up in the order right now Betts, Seeger, and Turner are 0 for 6 with six strikeouts against Snell tonight. But no, no, no. The predetermined game plan that we mapped out with the analytics department in our front office said, at this stage of things, we are going to remove Blake Snell because this is how we do things around here. And the issue, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm finding this whole analytics debate has gotten there's analytics conversation has gotten so ridiculous. 
that it's turned into a referendum. You're either all in or all out on analytics. Instead of using the data as a tool as part of everything else, it's now the tool and nothing else. And there's so much more that goes into sport, into a game, into the flow of, of what's happening out there on the field, on the ice, on the court, that it's either, it's either you're completely on board or you're completely not. And, and it shouldn't be that way. Yes, have the data. Yes, use the data as part of everything else. And to come into a game and not understand the flow of the game and what's happening in a game, you are ultimately going to get burned. And when did it happen? The, the Rays got burned in the biggest game of their life with their best pitcher, a Cy Young Award winner, absolutely dealing. And instead of using their eyes, they just use the book. Kind of parallels what the U.S. is going, heading towards on Tuesday with everything being a bit black and white. Um, yeah. Quickly, what, what I thought about Arash when that happened and sort of the ensuing reaction and sort of the, the focus on the decision, um, I thought back to the 2014 Seahawks with the, the call at the goal line with Pete Carroll. And I know right. you spent quite a bit of time with you know, certain Seahawks members since then, but I've always gotten the sense that that sort of, I don't want to say imploded their locker room, but it, it was a real issue that they had trouble moving on. From. No, but Alex, it imploded, it imploded their locker room. No, no, you can say that. That's fine. That'd be accurate. It okay. imploded their locker room. <laughs> I'm wondering, yeah. do you see any parallels? Will this be a challenge for the Rays going forward um, with the players and Kevin Cash? I don't, um, because the Rays, their payroll was $29 million this year. It's not like high-priced free agents are going to be like, well, we're not going to go there because this is how they run their operation. No high-priced free agent was going there anyway. And the majority of the Rays removed Snell, Morton, and Kiermaier. Who makes money there? I don't think anybody. Izzy, who's, I mean, of the $29 million bucks, I think those three might make 25 of it. 23 of it. And they've already uh, let Morton go for 2021. <laughs> right. Right. Because he only won them the pennant. Yeah. He was, he was, he's been great. He's been great for them and uh, a little too expensive. Right. Best big game pitcher the franchise has had since David Price. Um, I, I just, it's kind of one of those deals where, and, K- and Kiermaier was very outspoken after the game, and understandably so. And you get the emotion of it, and you get the anger of it, because you know, you're know you saying, we're, we're never going to get this close again. Look, I understand, I understand that, but also this formula got them this, helped get them this far. The question becomes is, will they, will they use this as a learning tool to be like, okay, Instead of being 100% down this road, should we also take the air out of the balloon just a little bit? Should we look at some other things in addition to just the numbers? Uh, I thought Dave Roberts a few years ago, guys, when I was covering a postseason, somebody asked him about it, and he said, look, he said, analytics are great. He said, the data we now have is amazing. He said, I wish I had this as a player. It would have, you know, it would have helped me in my career. But he said, we cannot use this as the manual. We have to use this as a guideline 
And someone asked, well, what do you mean by that? He said, look, it's still a game played by humans. He said, as the manager, as the field manager, I have to have a pulse of my clubhouse. I have to go through the locker room and talk to guys. If, if Alex's kid was up all night sick and crying and he didn't get much sleep, you can have all the binders and all the books in the world that you want, but he's got to go out there. If, his, if he's got a family member who's sick and in poor health and he's stressed out, how is that going to affect them? The algorithms and spreadsheets don't account for that. So, And then some days, it doesn't matter if you're on the golf course, if you're in the gym, if you're out for a run. Some days you feel lousy, and some days you feel okay, and some days, you know, you're hitting every drive down the middle of the fairway. You can lift more today than you ever have before. You're feeling great. Well, the same goes in sport. And yes, it's based on a 162-game model, so overall the math is going to work. But in the playoffs, it's a best-of-seven model. It's, it's what's going on tonight and tonight only because everything that you're doing tonight is to win that night's game, not about the whole season. So the, the way you approach the playoffs has to be different than the regular season. And the way you approach analytics has to, be, has to include an understanding of who and what your personnel is and as humans what they're going through. Sportsnet's Arash Madani on air with us, Sportsnet 650. Arash, the news out of Chicago after the World Series, in stark contrast of uh, Kevin Cash and, and his analytics-based uh, managing. Tony Larusa back in the game, 76, uh, going to take over a team that uh, looked like the kind of one of these up-and-coming, really young, exciting teams in baseball in the White Sox. Uh, what, what did you make of Larusa coming back and, and becoming the manager of uh, the Chicago White Sox? I thought that was a very Jerry Reinsdorf move, is he, to be quite honest with you. I think that's an old-school owner who's had just about enough of the entirely new-school approach. And he said, all right, let's 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 dial this back a little bit and see if this can work. Can we, you know, instill some some of the ways we used to do things and sprinkle in some of the new things and the old-school mindset and... Uh, some tough love instead of the kid gloves and see if that's going to work. And I mean, if you like, there's the new school approach. And then there's a dude who, you know, we thought Dusty Baker was old school. What's LaRusso like six years older than Dusty, seven years older than Dusty. Um, that, that to me has Jerry Reinsdorf written all over it. Sportsnet's Arash Madani joining us on air, Sportsnet 650. Uh, Arash switching um, to the CFL. Uh, we got the news on Monday that BC Lions owner, uh, David Braley, had passed away at the age of 79. Um, you spent a significant amount of time in the CFL with a couple of different franchises. Um, I'm just wondering if you can try to <laughs> explain David's legacy in the CFL because... He was a complicated character, uh, positive in some regards, um, and very unprogressive in others. And I'm just wondering if you have a story, an anecdote, or if you can just sort of try and encapsulate what what he was for the CFL. David Braley wanted the CFL to succeed. David Braley helped the CFL survive. I think those are those are absolutely absolute truths. 
the methods in which he went about it made you made you wonder other than at times rare times opening up his checkbook um how he went about it david braley still believed in blackouts and blacking out games like as recently as a year or two ago uh, David Braley is somebody who didn't believe in marketing the product. He just said, okay, if we win, people will come to the to the stadium. Um, David Braley didn't understand as recently as seven or eight years ago why every employee had to have an email address. Um, so, yeah, David Braley did some good things. There's no question. But here, you know, fundamentally, in, in Alex, you referenced the presidential election. I, I as an owner of a pro sports franchise, you are the steward for the fans. You are the steward for the city. You are the steward for the public. Are the BC Lions today in a better spot with David Braley as owner? Were the Toronto Argonauts in a better spot with Braley as owner than when he took it over? I don't know how many people would say yes to that answer for either of those organizations. And I wasn't around for the Hamilton days. I don't know. Um, But, uh, you know, he was somebody who liked to flex his muscles and tell people how much money he had. Uh, But when push came to shove, I'm, I'm not sure if the franchises have been in a better spot under his stewardship or not. When you look at the league, Arash, and specifically, uh, we'll stick to the Lions here. Obviously, the CFL has had a turbulent year. Uh, everyone's had a turbulent year, but they haven't been able to to get anything off the ground. Uh, there have been some issues in that regard for for a while now. Uh, if in an ideal world where everyone can can play football, and, and you're you're a, you're a football guy, you're a Canadian football guy. Going forward, what's what's the best plan for the BC Lions kind of at just the most basic level for them to be more established in this community and maybe get some more wins on the field because they haven't been as successful as they were, you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago? Yeah, not even close to where they were in 2011 winning the championship or even 2012 where I think that team was better than they were in 2011 the last time they won. Um. You know, that, that sounds like a very uh, ba- you know basic, rudimentary question. I don't know the answer to it because it's so hard to know what the world and what the landscape is going to be and look like coming out of COVID. What, what's the business model? How is this going to, going to go? Ultimately, what you need is you need local ownership, that has a stake in the matter, that cares about making this franchise work in that community first and foremost. Look, the CFL can pretend to be a lot of things. They're now they're talking about global expansion and whatever. The CFL is about selling tickets two by two and having a connection with the people in the city and their fan base. And the Lions have completely disconnected from their fan base while at the same time having a lousy football team that i mean it's it's not a fatal blow but man it's damn close and man it's damn lethal and that's why the stadium is empty Uh, you know when you don't care about marketing when you don't care about investing in your in your franchise in your property to 
to be established with your stakeholders, this is what this is what ends up happening. Now you have a fresh slate. Now it's imperative that you get local ownership, deep pocket local ownership, invested local ownership in what you're doing, who want to be hands-on and who understand that Izzy and Alex and Jane and Jill, each of them, each of them matter. And in a lot of ways, I think the CFL has gotten away from that, and especially the Lions have gotten away from that. And if there's one thing coming out of COVID that's going to be most important, it's connecting um, with people. And, uh, and that's, that's what's going to be really important for the next ownership group. We'll get you out of the out of here on this, Arash, because I got to say it might be painful for you, but I take great joy in your Sunday meltdowns in relation to Kirk Cousins, Vikings, yeah. Packers tomorrow. Give me uh, give me your uh, optimized Kirk Cousins stat line for tomorrow. <laughs> well, I mean, when you think about athletes and sports who are paid thirty million dollars or more, name me a crappier one than Kirk Cousins. I can't. No, it's it's terrible. You know, like I'd pay you. Chris I'd Davis pay you thirty Baltimore. million for him, Arash. Right, like Kurt, uh, Chris Davis in Baltimore is making what twenty? Is he? Is that what his contract is? I think so. I think so, I yeah. would take Chris Davis, the first baseman in Baltimore, as quarterback of Minnesota over Kirk Cousins, and just eat the ten million dollars. <laughs> um, uh. this guy is a disgrace. This guy is a complete waste um and he has plunged that franchise into like you talk about a franchise that has just completely lost it on the field i mean he has almost single-handedly plunged that thing into the toilet like take a bow dude 53 guys on the roster and you alone have have sent it to the outhouse like that that doesn't come easy so good for you so you're you're optimistic for tomorrow Yes, yes, going into Lambeau and Aaron Rodgers should go well. <laughs> should go very well. I thought the best one was um, the winless Falcons when it, the Vikings trailed 23 nothing to the winless Falcons on the day Captain Kirk threw three picks. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. First pass of the game, yeah. picked off. Just, just, and that was, that was a sign of things to come. He stuck the landing, Arash. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. All right, boys. All right. Sportsnet's Arash Madani. I had to get that in there at the end because uh, I'm, I'm a big Kirk Cousins is not good guy, and Arash blows me out of the water with his take. And he's, he's got the Vikings connection. So does our producer, Josh Elliott-Wolf. Maybe we'll, we'll pick that down a little bit later in the show. All right. Coming up next, uh, Mitchell Miller. It's been a big story in the NHL, drafted by the Arizona Coyotes. He will not uh, have his rights retained. His draft rights were let go by the Coyotes. Won't be playing in college either with the University of North Dakota. Brad Schlossman from the Grand Forks Herald will join us to unpack this situation uh, and exactly what the future holds for Mitchell Miller uh, and how the University of North Dakota decided to approach this, uh, given all that was swirling around uh, the young player uh, coming out of the NHL draft. We'll do that next. It's on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on Sportsnet 650. Time for Sportsnet today. This is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 
Israel Fair, Alex Blair. It is on air, Sportsnet 650. Uh, going to be unpacking a, a big story in the world of hockey, a sensitive story. Uh, it involves Mitchell Miller, a young hockey player who was drafted by the Arizona Coyotes uh, in the fourth round of uh, this month's NHL draft and uh, is not going to be a prospect of the Arizona Coyotes as some details emerged of a, a bullying situation uh, from a few years ago in his uh, native Ohio. Uh, it is uh, it is a pretty nasty situation, all things considered. Uh, we're going to bring in Brad Elliott Schlossman from the Grand Forks Herald, who covers the University of North Dakota hockey team, uh, as uh, Mitchell Miller was slated to, to play for, for the University of North Dakota. Uh, Friday morning, uh, the decision was made by the university that uh, he would no longer be part of the hockey team. Uh, he can still remain there as a student, but uh, but won't be playing hockey. We'll unpack that uh, with Brad momentarily. But uh, just before we get to the interview, Alex, uh, how did you uh, how did you approach this this story as we watched it develop? Started with a report from the Arizona Republic uh, in Phoenix, uh, and has now culminated with this player no longer being part of an NHL organization and no longer having a NCAA college team to play for. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like the story kind of the Arizona Republic story came out on Monday. And, um, but if you go back before then, I know in our conversations with Scott Wheeler, who covers junior hockey for the athletic, um, there was quite a bit known about this situation and that a number of teams had not had them on their draft list. Um, there's been a lot of talk this week that, you know, a number of teams were shocked when the Coyotes took him uh, and took him in the fourth round. But um, I think that all came to light on a larger scale on Monday with the Arizona Republic putting a lot of those details into print. And as you mentioned off the top, in the span of five days, um, Mitchell, Mitchell Miller's um, sort of hockey path forward, both collegiately and within the Arizona Coyotes organization, has come has come to an abrupt halt. And uh, you know, it's it's a really disappointing story to hear. It's a really sad story when you sort of unpack it. And uh, I know we've got Brad on the line who joins us from Grand Forks. Um, Brad, thanks very much for joining us. Um, I'd love to start sort of prior to this week. Um, can you tell us sort of the courting sort of process that went on between Mitchell and UND? My understanding is that he had he had either committed or verbally committed to another school and that there was a, a switch to UND at some point. Um, give me the, the backstory on how he ended up as a UND athlete. Yeah, he was uh, originally committed to uh, Miami, uh, located in Oxford, Ohio, which is uh, much closer to home. Uh, he he committed fairly young. I can't remember exactly how old he was when he made that original commitment. And then uh, as you uh, see it with a, a fair amount of regularity when kids commit at a young age, a lot of times they end up changing their mind and in, in deciding, you know, maybe I want to uh, try something else. Um, you know, I, I think at the time, uh, you know, M Miami uh, had started struggling a little bit. Maybe that's what uh, made him reopen his commitment. He, he talked about it briefly, but he ended up uh, reopening his uh, recruitment and then uh, UND uh, committed him uh, must have been uh, it's uh, two years ago, maybe, I want to say. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's been some time now. 
Bradbury, head coach Bradbury at UND came out with a, a statement. I think it was this week. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong, saying that he was aware of what he sort of quote unquote an unfortunate incident or the unfortunate incident. What do you think? What did UND know when they committed this player? And have any of the revelations that have come out this week caught them by surprise? Well, one thing that struck me in, in the statement was uh, that they said incident as in uh, singular. And uh, I thought that uh, reading uh, what uh, the victim's mother had said was it, it was not an incident. And uh, in her letter that appeared on The Athletic, uh, she said that uh, that uh, Mitchell had uh, taunted uh, the victim uh, two years ago even. And so that was definitely one thing that struck me was it was uh, referred to as that UND said it was aware of the incident and, and not uh, necessarily the pattern that preceded uh, the incident and that's, uh, the mom said, uh, continued after in some fashion. Brad, when, uh, we look at the situation, Alex stated off the top, it moved pretty quickly. Once that report from the Arizona Republic came out, uh, obviously the university of North Dakota was not, uh, the, the central focus to begin with, that was the, the Arizona coyotes. But over the course of the week, the, the university has made the decision that, uh, Mitchell Miller will not be playing there. How, how did the week play out, uh, with the university and, and, and ultimately making the decision that, that he would no longer be part of the hockey team? Well, at first on, on Monday, uh, when that original statement we were just talking about was released, um, UND uh, had planned to uh, keep Mitchell Miller uh, uh, this season and uh, go from there. But uh, as is often the case at a university, uh, especially with uh, something that's uh, big that's happening, and clearly this became... Uh, something that was, uh, you know, a, a big issue for, for the school. A lot of people get involved, and it, it's not just uh, the hockey coach or not just the athletic director. Uh, it is p- people from around campus, and uh, there were certainly uh, members of the campus community uh, that were unhappy to see Mitchell Miller uh, on the men's hockey team, which. Here is uh, the number one team on campus. It, you know, the, the men's hockey program here, uh, it, it is not football or, or basketball, as is the case in, in many uh, schools. And a, a lot of uh, not only students, but uh, I saw tweets from student athletes of other sports. I saw tweets from uh, football players, uh, softball player, track and field athlete. And, and so there were a lot of people uh, on campus who were unhappy that Mitchell Miller was going to be part of the hockey team. Ultimately, uh, the president ended up making the decision uh, that uh, Miller was not going to be part of the hockey team. However, he was welcome to uh, remain a student at UND. With him remaining a student, 
did the university have the option to completely remove him? Uh, I've sort of seen mixed things there, or or basically was he? Did they not have much leeway in removing him as a student, but they could remove him as a as a student athlete? Well, uh, I asked about uh, a UND spokesperson about his scholarship. Uh, does he remain on scholarship? And, and the answer I received is he remains on scholarship for one year. Uh, when he signed his scholar scholarship deal, um, the school is obligated to uh, own up to its end of that unless there is a um, major incident or violation during the period in which he is on the scholarship. And so uh, if he chooses to remain in school, I don't know what he's going to end up doing. Uh, UND uh, will... Uh, he will be on scholarship for one academic year. Now, Brad, you cover that team as closely as anyone, uh, and I'm referring to the UND hockey team. Uh, can you take me back to October 7th? Obviously, it was a big night for Mitchell. Uh, he does get selected. Um, what was his reaction? Do you, you know, was this issue on the forefront? Did he think he had moved past this issue? Um, I'm just wondering if you could sort of paint the picture of that night when he's at Ralph Engelstad with his family. Yeah, um, so uh, the UND had all of its uh, draft prospects, the, the freshman class uh, with their families uh, on campus. Uh, they had Jake Sanderson went the first night, uh, number five overall, Tyler Clavin went uh, the second day, and then uh, Mitchell Miller was the third to go. So uh, he was there, his uh, family was there, including his uh, sister and his younger brother, uh, his parents, and, um, you know, there was, uh, it didn't seem to be uh, at the forefront uh, at all. Um, of course, it, it, it's very weird doing interviews in, in this new age. <laughs> Um, you know, everyone's kind of doing Zoom interviews and were, they were kind of in a suite and, uh, you know, the media obviously isn't in the same suite because we're uh, trying to uh, keep distance from everybody. So, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like everyone was up, up close, but certainly uh, there wasn't a hint of it uh, at that point in time. Brad Elliott Schlossman from the Grand Forks Herald with us on air, Sportsnet 650. Uh, Brad, this is a, a program at UND that people here in Vancouver are, are quite familiar with, uh, with Brock Besser having played there, with Troy Stetcher, a, a player from Vancouver who uh, just played the last four years for the Canucks. It is a program that people uh, here pay attention to a little bit because of, of some of those connections. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone that's there and, and covering the team, covering the beat, can you can you give us perspective or context? Uh, you said it's it's the biggest team on campus. It's an important team in in the community. Can you elaborate on that in in terms of the standing that the team and and the program has within the the North Dakota community? Yeah, you know, I uh, it is uh, you know I, I think if you think college football, uh, you think of uh, teams kind of uh, Alabama's and the Michigan's and you think basketball, you think Duke and North Carolina. Uh, when people think college hockey, North Dakota is uh, one of those teams. They, they've won more games than anyone in the last decade. Uh, they were the number one team in the country last year. Uh, they were named the number one team uh, actually this week, uh, preseason number one. Uh, 
Uh, you mentioned some of the uh, NHL guys that have come through Vancouver. You know, Ryan Johnson, uh, who's there as a North Dakota player. Um, they've, they've had quite a few uh, go through there. So it is the, the spotlight team on campus. Uh, I think that they do uh, pride themselves on um, not only recruiting uh, quality uh, hockey players, but also recruiting quality people. I, I think a, a lot of people in Vancouver um, would relate to that with uh, guys like Ryan Johnson and Brock Besser and Troy Stetcher. And, and I think that's uh, kind of what uh, the program uh, has prided itself in and wants to be uh, seen as. Brad Mitchell was a, a player that USA Hockey had extended an invite to for their 2021 World Junior Camp. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have heard uh, the extent of sort of the changes to that. Um, would you expect Mitchell to be still included in that or whether it's from USA Hockey or him, uh, he himself? Do you think that that, um, you know, will that invite still be there or do you think maybe he's going to take a step back here? Well, I, I mean, that that's a good question. Uh, I would say it, it seems like it would be a long shot. Um, he he was a, a late addition to that USA Hockey roster. Uh, he did go to the camp, and uh, I think the next step for them they're not they're not really doing what Hockey Canada is doing, where they're bringing them together super early in uh, mid November. They're planning on bringing the team together in December, and I'm guessing they're going to pretty much bring the team. I, I don't know if they're going to have much of a a camp. I think that's what they used. Uh, a few days for earlier uh, this month. And uh, so, you know, even if this, uh, you know, I, I think he was kind of a long, a little bit of a long shot to, to begin with. I think now he's, uh, you would think he's a, a real long shot, but uh, I, I definitely am, don't know what USA Hockey is uh, uh, thinking at this moment. Well, uh, uh, definitely a big story. And uh, as you, as you mentioned, Brad, the University of North Dakota, is a, is a big program. They, they stand for a lot and uh, ultimately come to the decision that, that he won't be playing for them. So it'll be it'll be something that uh, I'm sure we'll all be we'll all be watching and and uh, continuing to dig into you know some some of these stories that that happen around hockey. Thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. Yep. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Brad Elliott Schlossman, Grand Forks Herald. You can read. His articles uh, on Mitchell Miller and uh, the University of North Dakota hockey team, uh, GrandForksHerald.com. Uh, one thing I think that we should do before we wrap the segment is, um, it is, it is, you know, uh, uh, as I said to, at the start, it's a, it's a, I mean, you could call it reprehensible, vile. Uh, the details are are pretty tough. The victim is Isaiah Myers Crothers, who is a disabled. Uh, or uh, disables actually putting it too strongly. I think he's uh, a kid who struggles with some uh, learning disabilities and was, uh, was you know, bullied and uh, abused by a, a group of kids, including Mitchell Miller. And this is a, a reckoning in a lot of ways uh, in terms of uh, what's, what's acceptable uh, in, in hockey today. Um, there is, I think, uh, I guess my final... Overall thoughts on on what transpires because there is that argument, Alex. Uh, how far is too far? What's too much of a punishment? To me, the basic line is that 
professional sports are um, are a bonus. Uh, you might be a great hockey player, but that doesn't mean that you uh, can get away with a lot of different stuff and, and, and play hockey uh, because at the end of the day, playing sports, even though it's our livelihood, it's what we do on this radio station, it's what uh, we have done in our careers as well. Uh, it is it is something that is a product of a high-functioning society. And when there are issues like this involving players, uh, they have to be addressed, they have to be talked about, uh, and they should be, the, the goal should be to eradicate them. And by uh, standing by, allowing a player to play, um, there, there, needs to be, there needs to be something done. And I think that we have seen that uh, it's taken a while. Uh, you would like it to be a proactive decision, not a reactive decision, but here we are. Yeah. The, the thing that kind of caught me is, you know, people will ask, you know, do people deserve a second chance? And I think people earn a second chance. And by all accounts, this was, um, this behavior, uh, went on for a long period of time. According to the victim's mother, it started as early as grade two. Um, he was charged with assault and violating the Ohio, um, the Ohio Safe Schools Act. That was in grade eight, which sounds like a while ago, but actually that's only 2016. So that's four years ago. But according to Isaiah's mother, the abuse continued till at least two years ago. So into his grade 10 year, uh, the judge, when he was found guilty, um, sort of a youth judge, um, her sort of, when she read out the, the verdict, I guess, if you will, um, she said, I don't think you are remorseful for what you did, um, more than you are upset for the negative attention that you were getting. And I think in a lot of eyes, as you touched on, as reprehensible as things were, and there was another student involved, but that student apparently um, apologized uh, to the family and to Isaiah. Isaiah has accepted that apology. Uh, but according to the family, Mitchell never did. And it sounds like his actions since then have shown a lot, you know, a lack of remorse for what he did. And he had the time to write a letter to 31 NHL teams to sort of try and benefit himself for his own future. Um, but apparently he didn't have the time to write a letter or um, speak to the family direct directly and offer a sincere apology. So it's going to be an interesting path forward. Um, I know the athletic Ryan S. Clark, who we've had on the show before, wrote a piece this morning about, you know, where Mitchell goes from here. He spent the last three years playing in the USHL prior to what should have been his first year this year at North Dakota. Um his so he there's a potential he could go back that route but from the reporting that ryan did it sounded like you know there's not a lot of teams that are going to want to to touch mitchell at this point it's such a such a hot story and uh he his ohl rights are owned by sarnia and you know there's not a lot of people in the ohl that think he has a path forward that way so um my guess you know i reached out to his agent or shouldn't say his agent his advisor yesterday um and you know, it's clear that they don't want to talk at this point. I think they probably like Mitchell and his family have been just absolutely kind of hit upside the head with the way this has all become such a huge story in the last week after probably thinking that this was, you know, in the past and they were moving on. But um, yeah, when those details were put into print on Monday in the Arizona Republic, things changed very quickly. And 
I think at that point, both the Coyotes and UND thought, you know, we can sort of play the, we're here to support him and rehabilitate him and we're going to give him that opportunity. And as the story sort of grew and gained momentum, it became pretty clear within 36 hours that I don't think that that was going to cut it with the public, uh, either in Phoenix or in Grand Forks, um, let alone outside those communities. And both of those uh, programs have cut ties with him. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a sad story. But I mean, if if you're listening and and you're either a parent or you know a young person, and we all and I don't want to say this was a mistake because this was a, a intentional act that came from a really bad place and repeated as well as and you repeated. But having said that. If he had apologized and if he had made amends for what he did and if his, as he claims, he didn't realize the power of some of the racial slurs he was using at the time, if those are accurate, if he had taken steps since then to educate himself, to help the community and help others understand the mistakes that he made or the poor decisions that he made, then we might not be here. And often the the cover-up is worse than the crime. Often the lack of remorse is worse than what you really did. And I would say if you're someone looking at this story from the outside, as unfortunate an incident as it is, and you would hope that it it didn't happen, that to me is the takeaway. That no matter, you know, if you shoved a kid on the playground or you called a kid a name that you didn't realize the significance of it at the time, you need to apologize. You need to correct that. You can't just sort of bury it under the rug and hope that it'll go away. And this is a really good example of it's not going to go away. And here's Mitchell who made these decisions, but he has spent his entire life playing hockey. And that may have all come to an end this week based on his own actions and his lack of accountability for them. Right. And I, I think uh, my final thought before before we close out, um, it has been probably for far too long. A lot of behavior gets swept under the rug because uh, a player is, a, is an athlete. Someone is a person is an athlete and a team needs them. They have a talent uh, they want. Uh, a team wants them to be part of, of their team. And uh, it has excused a lot of behavior, and I think that we're seeing that change. It's not perfect. Uh, there's still a long way to go. Conversations to be had, but this is uh, this has been quite quite the story this week. And um, it's uh, I encourage people to check out Ryan Clark's story in the Athletic because uh, he's he's on the ball with perspective and reporting on the topic. All right, coming up next, our final segment. Uh, we'll put some final thoughts on some of the topics we've covered today. And then uh, we're going to close out with some Halloween fun. Uh, so you want to check that out and join us for that. All right, we'll do that next. Israel Fair, Alex Blair is on air on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. Wrapping up on air for another week here, Sportsnet 650, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, our producer, Josh Elliott-Wolf. We'll get to some uh, fun Halloween-themed sports takes, maybe some Halloween stories as well. Uh, I don't know, Alex, your your general thoughts and, and feelings about uh, today's October 31st 
celebration uh, as we've been talking about since we've launched the show. Uh, everything is different, certainly in sports, certainly in social gatherings. So this is going to be a Halloween unlike any other. We talked to Arash Madani earlier today, uh, and he he said that the championships for him, he, he just covered the World Series. Uh, he's a fan of the, the L.A. Lakers, so uh, he was definitely following the the NBA finals. Uh, we had the Stanley Cup finals, and he, he he's going to remember them for the lack of fans uh, in the stands. Uh, so it's going to be, yeah. What's your, what's your Halloween in a regular time? What's your, your regular Halloween uh, go to? Well, usually a, a Halloween on a Saturday is just, you know, those are the years that you love. Cause you've kind of, I mean, one, it's a go night. You don't have anything the next day. Um, this year, obviously a little bit different. We've, you know, depending on where you are in the country, the restrictions and, I think in Vancouver bars are still closing at 10 o'clock. So um, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a 2020 Halloween in some ways. And it's, you know, it, it's, it would only be made, I think, a little easier if it was like, say, a random Tuesday or a Wednesday night, but to have it on a Saturday. Um, if you are going out tonight, if you have kids, um, you know, try and do your best to stay safe. I think everyone would like to share in the spirit of Halloween, uh, but doing so safely. So. Um, I did want to mention too, I know we, we chatted about this just before we came on, uh, some sad news this morning. If you didn't hear, uh, Sean Connery, uh, the famous actor, um, from the James Bond series, um, one of my favorite movies growing up, The Rock with Nicolas Cage. Um, he passed away this morning at age 90 and, uh, I couldn't help but think as we head into what will be master's week next week, uh, Sean Connery was a huge lover of golf, very passionate, and uh, he actually spent quite a bit of time in the lower mainland, played a number of the courses. And, you know, I'll never forget, there's a quote um, about Capilano. Uh, and he said that, you know, there's no finer place to be on a Monday morning than the first tee at Capilano. Um, he loved Cap. Uh, I know he didn't love Furry Creek very much, um, but just wanted to acknowledge, <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to acknowledge Sean Connery, who, uh, whether you're, you know, our age is he, or if you're of an older generation, he had a career that spanned numerous decades and was one of those actors that I think really connected with a lot of young boys because of the characters he played. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of the James Bond franchise, the first five that he's in, and then he returned for, for a couple of more are uh, in the iconic class. I mean, for me, From Russia With Love is the best one that, that he's in. Uh, it, it, it is that, you know, really charming, uh, seductive, exotic, what the character is all about. And then I, I do look at later in his career, there's, there's a run, uh, The Untouchables, uh, Indiana Jones, and um, Hunt for Red October. Where he is just, you know, film. in his in his prime, uh, he's he's got that movie star aesthetic, and s same with The Rock. I mean, uh, I'm not going to try to do a Sean Connery impression. Uh, they they are they are very <laughs> very overdone. Uh, but uh, the scene in The Rock when he you know crawls out and welcomes welcomes them to The Rock is is just uh, there, there's some iconic lines. Same with uh, same with Hunt for Red October. There's that that late stretch in his career where he plays sort of the elder statesman. Uh, but uh, yeah, just great, great screen presence. Actually, one of the things that I've been most drawn to during uh, the last few months, being more so at home, watching a lot of television and film has been exploring some of these older movies and uh, having a little bit more time to do so. And, and uh, I watched 
all five, the first, uh, actually, I guess the first six James Bond films that Sean Connery was in, uh, from Dr. No to uh, Diamonds Are Forever. And then also uh, watched uh, Hunt for Red October and um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh, recently, like within the last few months. So uh, what, what's uh, your favorite Connery Bond film? I, I From Russia with Love. And, and I think Dr. No second for me. Okay. But I'm a, um, I'm a, I grew up with Daniel Craig as my Bond. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've got Casino Royale and Skyfall at the top, and then and then the Connery the Connery films uh, mm-hmm. after that, and then Goldeneye because that's also kind of a of a of a certain time and place. That's that's kind of the essence of the Bond films, isn't it? They're all they're all very representative of a certain time and place. Absolutely. So, I just wanted to acknowledge, yeah, Sean Connery um, passed away passed away this morning, uh, age ninety. Um, just circling back to the Mitchell Miller story, and I know we touched on it last segment with uh, with Brad. The other perspective is the Arizona Coyotes, who used their first draft pick this year. They did not have picks in rounds one, two, or three. Um, your colleague, Aaron Portsline, with The Athletic did some some good reporting this week. And I just thought it was interesting. It hasn't been touched on a lot, but he reported that John Chaka, who is the former GM of the Coyotes, who left in July. In June, they had scouting meetings. And at that point, Mitchell Miller was removed from their draft list because of these issues. Fast forward a couple of weeks, John Chaka resigns from that position with that whole other story that we talked about. And at some point, Bill Armstrong from the St. Louis Blues comes in. I thought it was notable that Aaron Portsline reported that at this point, nobody knows whether the Blues had him on their list or not. Basically signaling that there is a chance that Bill Armstrong coming from St. Louis would have had Mitchell Miller on their draft list. They bring in Ryan Jankowski to sort of run their draft. He's from Buffalo. Buffalo had removed Mitchell Miller from their draft list. And yet, when it comes up with the Arizona Coyotes in round four, all of a sudden they they decide to take Mitchell Miller. And I just thought it was really interesting sort of trying to put the pieces together as to sort of who was responsible with the Coyotes. And uh, there's obviously been a lot of turnover there, but when you see the, you know, I just look at a franchise that could go, <laughs> they need a win. <laughs> and they lost three draft picks already. They've now renounced their, their fourth round pick. So basically you go 0 for 4 in the first round of this year's draft. And then next year, you don't have picks through rounds one, two, and three as well. It's just, I mean, the poor just keep getting poorer, unfortunately, for for Coyotes and Coyotes fans especially. Yep, and that's that's a, an insight into NHL front offices that we don't often get. Uh, that stuff tends to be held very close to the vest. In this instance, we're, we're getting some insight into uh, how some of these decisions get made, the, the making of a draft board, the decision on a prospect with this kind of, of history and uh, still, still some questions to be answered when it comes to to the Coyotes uh, and and the makeup of their their scouting and, and their front office. All right, uh, let's let's uh, get into the Halloween theme a little bit. We're gonna do a trick or treat segment with uh, Josh Elliott Wolf, our producer. Uh, so you know, Josh, the floor is floor is yours. If you wanna if you wanna uh, build off of a rash's Kirk Cousins takes at any point, please. Please oh, feel man. free, but uh, <laughs> and, and set this up for the audience, Josh, so that they understand the concept of, of what we're doing here. Yeah, yes. let's do it. So essentially, I'm going to give you uh, just a few topics and 
Uh, you're going to tell me whether they're a trick or a treat, so uh, you'll kind of see what I mean as I go through. So I'm going to start with the Seahawks record. Uh, they're 5-1. and one. They got their first loss of the season last week against Arizona. Big matchup against San Fran tomorrow. Uh, but do you think the Seahawks are for real? So are they a treat and that 5-1 and one is legit? Or do you think it's been a trick and they've uh, kind of fluked their way to 5-1? and one? It's, a, it's a treat to me. Uh, we talked about it earlier in the show. There is one real deficiency. It's the defensive line. It's the lack of pressure on the quarterback. But I look at I look at the schedule. They've got five wins. Yes, some of them in the tight. They they pulled out a couple ones late. Uh, they had one go against them in, in the game against the Cardinals on Sunday night last week. But they've got a stretch where they play the Eagles, the Giants, the Jets, and the Washington football team, surrounded by a bunch of divisional games. So if if they show well against San Francisco, if they show well against the Rams, a team that has done pretty well against them the last couple of years, played some tight games, uh, Rams might not be the team that they were when they went to the Super Bowl, but are, are still an above average team. If they tread water in the division and take advantage of that stretch with the Eagles, the, the two New York teams and the Washington football team, then uh, they're going to be a team that's going to be double-digit wins, and the NFC doesn't have another team that's really out there. Look, Tampa's look good. The Packers are five and one, uh, but otherwise, uh, it's going to be within their own division. And, and I think that they've got they've got the weapons offensively to to keep this going. The, the, the offense is legit. Russell Wilson is, uh, even though he had a bit of a of an off game or at least a few off plays against the Cardinals, is is still the MVP front runner for me. I'm a trick. Uh, I think the Seahawks are good. I think they have potential, but I'm trick because when you look at sort of the standings through six weeks or seven weeks and you see a team at five and one, you would think that that team is a Super Bowl contender. And I think the Seahawks are not as good as their five and one record. Uh, I think Sunday was a great indication of how vulnerable that defense is. It finally got burned after a couple of late wins, as Izzy touched on. Uh, I think they could get better, but I don't think they're as good as their record shows at this point. Uh, I don't think they're in that sort of top tier of the NFC. Um, they're going to get to the playoffs, but I think they are susceptible if they don't shore up that defense. Yeah, I got to uh, agree with you, Alex. I would say trick as well. That defense is just so so questionable. And look, if they, if they can shore it up uh, via trade, maybe I come around, but... Uh, I do think they're going to make the playoffs. They're just not necessarily as good as they seem so far and what their record might indicate. Uh, okay, moving on. A.J. Hinch was hired in Detroit after serving time for the cheating scandal. Do you think that's a trick and he's not going to be as good as he was in Houston? Obviously a completely different team. Or do you think it's a treat and he is the guy that can help turn that organization around after they finished fifth to five in their division last week at or last season at 23 and 35 i hate to say it but it's uh this is also a treat to me uh and it, there might be some consternation about his availability whether he should even be in this kind of job given what happened in houston but mlb put out their punishment he has served it he's available uh detroit has uh looked they looked a little bit better in the second half of this season they've needed a a, a kind of stronger younger 
a leader in that management position. And uh, AJ Hinch is a guy that, uh, look, we, we know the garbage can stuff. It's it's not great. It wasn't a good look for Houston. wasn't a good look for Major League Baseball, but uh, managed a pretty talented bunch of players in Houston and is, is getting a second chance. He served the punishment that was uh, that was handed out by Major League Baseball. And I think that I think Detroit uh, is a team to, to keep an eye on uh, in, in part because of this move. Yeah, I'm with Izzy there. I, I think he's paid his due. I'll say a treat as well. Um, I thought, you know, when you look at the punishment that was handed out to the Astros, um, AJ Hinch took it in, on the chin as much as anybody. Um, was he culpable for sure? But I I looked at the players that got off pretty scot-free. And, uh, you know, he had to pay that a full year out of the game. Um, not saying that, you know... It, He's earned his second chance, in my opinion. Uh, I hope he does well in Detroit. And uh, yeah, I'll take a treat on that one as well. Yeah, I think I'm going to go treat across the board here just because... Uh, and look, I don't know if uh, baseball managers make too much of a day. Obviously, they make a difference, but not a crazy difference. But that yeah, being I'm said, with you. Yeah, that being said, it's uh, he's still a good manager and will help out that team for sure. Uh, moving on. Finally, the Calgary Canucks, I like to call them, uh, the Flames acquiring another Canuck uh, just after the show last week, Josh Levo. Um, do you think their acquisition of a team that took a second round exit last season and acquiring four <laughs> of their players uh, is a trick and it's going to backfire on them or is it, is it a treat and they're the pieces they need to get to the next level in Calgary? For me, it's it's mostly trick. The big one is is Jacob Markstrom. If he's anything like he was uh, for the Canucks the last couple of years for a Calgary team, that I still like the top end talent. Right, the, the Markstrom's the one that's being brought in to make difference. Chris Tanev is a complimentary player. Uh, Josh Levo is potentially going to get an opportunity there to be a complimentary player as well. If Jacob Markstrom can really hold the fort for them and the thing is their, their goaltending gets crushed a little bit but it's just been a lack of consistency right David Riddich has had stretches where he was good Cam Talbot was pretty solid last year they're hoping that Markstrom elevates them but I think overall if you're looking at the big picture it's 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 mostly a trick for this Calgary team and if if they are going to be better it's because the, their top end guys uh take a step and if the Canucks players that they've acquired to help out with that it's it's going to have some factor, but I, I still, I still think overall, it's a, it's a trick for me. This is like one of those homemade cookies that you got in your Halloween basket as a kid. Like you have it, it was good at the time, but the next day you get like the Hershey squirts. Like it's not going to be good in the end <laughs> because I think, especially if we have an all Canadian division, the Flames and the Canucks will play a lot. I do think in the first year, those players are going to be motivated to play against the Canucks. I think some of the youth of the Canucks, you know, Petey talked about it this week, how much Markstrom meant to him. I think they're almost going to be in sort of a, you know, a weird space. But as those contracts go on, Tanev, even maybe the end of Markstrom's deal, I think those are going to be a trick that you're like, I wish I did not eat that. And that's my feeling. So I'm kind of playing the line here, but I think there's a little understanding. It's yeah, you, you had the treat, you enjoyed it at the time, but it's it's going to make you feel sick tomorrow. Yeah, I got to go with Trick, too. I mean, look, Markstrom and Tanev are both good pieces, and I think they will help the team. But, I mean, that being said, 
Tanev's just going to kind of fill in for Brody. And Markstrom is the big piece they acquired. Um, but yeah, that being said, 10 million tied up in those guys. Year three and four of Tanev's contract is questionable to me. And obviously, Markstrom's good, but six years is a long time. I don't know if Calgary is set to win the cup in, two, in the next two years. And those moves were made as if they are a team that's ready to win that or win the cup or at least challenge for uh, cup contention. I do like the Levo signing, to be fair. But aside from that, Markstrom and Tan have great players, but overpaid both on term and on uh, dollar-wise as well. So, yeah, that uh, that wraps it up for Trick or Treat, I believe. All right, Josh. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing that, setting that up. Well, we got a few minutes here before we make way for the next program on the station. Uh, why don't we, why don't we go around or at least uh, Josh can jump in on this too, but I'll, I'll ask you, Alex, uh, in the spirit of Halloween in your years dressing up, whether it was as a youngster or potentially as a, as a party going adult. So what's, uh, what's your best, what's your best costume? It's funny. I was actually just going to ask you the same thing. Um, the one that comes to mind is I went as Rufio from the movie hook. So this is probably mid nineties. Uh, my mom sort of put it together. I love that movie as a kid. Yeah. And I, I, like, I don't totally recall the whole thing, but he had this sort of, I'm going to call it like a neck dress or something. I think it was made out of bones in the movie and it kind of like stuck up, but I remember my mom like individually put straws in. And so they were all sticking up. And anyway, it was kind of, you know, this is pre sort of the commercialization or the extreme commercialization of Halloween where like, you know, all the costumes that are available now weren't available back then. And uh, yeah, we just did this one at home. That's the one that stands out the most for me. So Josh, how about you? Uh, well, I kind of grew up in the commercial commercialization, but so I kind of went as uh, pretty basic stuff most of the time. I do remember one year I went, it was like super homemade and rushed because I think uh, we had just kind of forgotten about it. But um, I had like a lightsaber toy and then I also, uh, my mom just like gave me a robe. And so I went as like a Jedi that year and it was like the most homemade thing I could do, but it ended up working out. So that's the one I remember the most for sure. I often in childhood, especially getting toward my teenage years would do the just athlete thing, you know soccer coach soccer player baseball player put on some put on some jerseys you were um, a mail it mail it in guy yeah yeah i mean when i was younger my, my parents were invested i had some 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 cool costumes and then in in adulthood uh most recently it's been a couple of years since, since i went out mostly you know put a suit on and i think i've done uh you know old school reporter or 1920s gangster but my best, my best was a, a handful of years ago. I did Eminem with the Detroit Tigers toque in the baggy, the baggy pants and the white T-shirt and the Beats by Dre and uh, just blasting music all night. That was that's probably my my crowning. I, I can see that on you, actually. You, yeah. You know, like I can see you being able there's to some photos out there that the, yeah. it's been photographed. Uh, what are you guys doing tonight? How is Halloween being handled? on the COVID front. Uh, boring, boring, boring right here. Probably, probably watch, watch some TV, 
live in an apartment, so no uh, no trick or treat situations. Uh, but uh, I hope I hope people can at least, as you said earlier in the show, Alex, kind of delve into the the spirit of the holiday because, as Bill Belichick famously said on that video with Randy Moss, you know, it's uh, costumes and candy. What's not to like? Exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm kind of. Kind of in the same boat. Not much planned. I'll be I'll be here doing uh, sports updates for the rest of the night. But once I get home, definitely not too much on the table. Awesome. Well, that's uh, that's a wrap for another week of on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in. If you missed the broadcast, you can always check out the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you find your podcasts. Just want to thank uh, producer Josh for running the controls, getting it set, doing trick-or-treat today. And uh, for all of you out there, um, have a happy and a safe Halloween. We will be back next week. Uh, it is Master's Week. and uh, I know you're also, excited. I am excited, actually. I, I kind of forgot about because our show on Saturdays is like always sort of a week ahead. And I was actually thinking, I'm like, oh, it's it's we're nobody's talking about the Masters yet, but we're kind of setting up Master's Week. But I think we'll probably tackle that next week as you know we'll be on... We'll be in the middle of the third round heading into the final round and we'll be able to sort of get a sense of who's in, uh, who's at the top of the leaderboards. So um, anyway, all, uh, all the best to you guys and uh, hope you have a, a safe and happy Halloween and thanks very much for listening. All right, yep, we'll be back next week. Canucks Connected with Joey Kenward is next. This is Sportsnet 650.